Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Okay, so thanks for tuning in again. Um, This is a segment that I'm recording with Omar Versali. He is a PhD candidate here at McMaster University. And we actually invited him to do regional rounds for us in uh, the spring of 2018, where he talked to us about machine learning and how it might change healthcare. So Omar, do you want to just give a little bit of background about how you got to be studying machine learning? Because I'm sure you have a very different educational background from the rest of us. Uh, Well, uh, first off, uh, Dr. Chan, thank you very much for inviting me here today. Um, I remember the, uh, it's funny, today machine learning is such a hot topic, but I remember when I first heard machine learning, it was the first day of my master's uh, with Dr. Doyle in the eHealth program. Um, And he said to me, Omar, you're going to do machine learning. And my response was, what's that? Um, So I come from a background in electrical and biomedical engineering, which is programming. Um, So for my master's, applying machine learning towards the healthcare domain was something very interesting. Um, Something I, I, you know, ever since I was a kid, I dreamed of working with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, And this was a great opportunity to do that. Excellent. Now, I know that healthcare is a a family business for you because you've told us uh, at the rounds that your sister, in fact, is a trainee in uh, medicine right now. Is that correct? Yes. uh, My sister, uh, Suzanne. Ambor Sally, she is currently a second year student, a clerk at McMaster University's medical school. Oh, excellent. All right. So Omar's sister's uh, out there on the wards right now and in the in the emergency department. Absolutely. Taking That's actually where she is right now. Yeah, excellent. So uh, so, so it must resonate with you that, you know, that your sister is going into healthcare and there's a lot of freaking out on the internet about how machines are going to just take over our jobs. Um, so as uh, the brother of a sister who is in healthcare, how do you explain to her what's going on in the field right now? And, and what's your take on all of this stuff? Uh, so we've had lots of fun conversations over dinner. You know, my sister's saying how she's going to go, uh, she's helping to save lives. And then she's like, you're going to come and ruin and take my job away from me. <laughs> um, and the way I, I like to explain to my sister is um, machine learning is not going to be taking anyone's job in healthcare anytime soon. It's a tool. Um, it's no different than when the x-ray machine first came out or the stethoscope. It's nearly another tool in the health professional's toolbox to help treat diseases. Okay. And so what do you mean by that, though? Can you explain a little bit of what a machine learning algorithm actually is? So um, right now there's a lot of talk about uh, artificial intelligence in healthcare, and you kind of use artificial intelligence and machine learning kind of in the same breath. Um, So maybe the first thing to do is to say, to define both of those terms and how they're different from each other. Uh, So when you think about artificial intelligence, you think of R2-D2 from Star Wars, the little robot who goes around thinking of stuff that he wants to do, finding out how to do it, and then executing that plan. Um, That's AI. Or, or even like data for all the Trekkies in the world, right? Exactly, yeah. okay. exactly, for all the Star Trek fans out there. Um, on the other hand, though, a machine learning algorithm is just that. It's an algorithm. It is a set of rules or processes that the program is going to follow to complete a pre-specified task. 
what is so interesting about machine learning is that how those rules are generated in the first place. Um, so in medicine, as we've talked about before, you can use uh, clinical decision rules. Um, and these are designed by experts who identify features of interest and they run some statistical tests on a few hundred patients to create the rule. Machine learning allows us to take that same process and supercharge it, looking at thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of patients to, to create our rule. Um, but uh, machine learning algorithms, unlike R2D2, cannot learn from new data after you deploy it and really is only good at the job that it was originally designed to do. So it cannot um, explore the world and learn new things by, like the AI you see in the movies. Okay, so to get this straight, machine learning algorithms are basically supercharged CDRs. Yes. And what they are are... Um, relational tools that might be more complicated than mm -hmm. the ones we know because the ones that they we know are limited by our human capacity to like process the data but might be a more complicated version of let's say the auto ankle rules added into the ct head rules added into a bunch of things to say do you ever need to do any investigation on this person and that might be a rule that could be generated by machine absolutely and what's nice about machine learning is it can look at patterns that wouldn't occur to us in the first place, perhaps, to look at. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, a funny example in the machine learning community is the idea that when Walmart was first testing out machine learning systems, they found a correlation between diapers and beer. Um, and that's because when the dads went in to buy diapers, they wanted to buy beer. So they figured out that if they put the beer next to the diapers, sales of both would actually increase. That's a correlation that probably would never have occurred to um, the marketers sitting in a room. So in a similar way, we can find patterns like that um, in healthcare that we just wouldn't have considered before. Very interesting. Now, at Regional Rounds, you actually talked to us about um, predictive validity, like and how like you were thinking about doing some work on readmissions or have done some work mm -hmm. on readmissions. Yes. And I thought that the anecdote that you shared with was spot on. Can you share yeah. it again on the podcast? Uh, so it's a, it's a really funny story. Um, so as I've said before, it's the idea of looking at the data and finding patterns that perhaps wouldn't have occurred to us in the first place. Uh, so right now I'm trying to develop a system for predicting diabetes readmission. Um, so this is using a database over a 10 year span. Um, nice patient population. I mean, we look at a lot of various features, age, gender, readmission type, um, stuff like that. Um, so I ran my machine learning algorithm and it uh, went through all the different combinations it could think of. Again, um, not without me telling it what to do. It was just trying different combinations it could think of. Um, and then it popped out an answer and it came to me and it said, Omar, um, discharge type three, that is my single best predictor um, for estimating whether a diabetes patients will be readmitted in the future. Um, and I was very interested. I'm like, oh, what is this feature? Perhaps there's something new we could look there. Discharge ID number three was death. And it, it's one of those uh, head pounding moments there where you're like, it's kind of like when a three-year-old comes to you with an answer to the question and you're like, you're not wrong. It's not what I wanted, but you're not technically wrong. Yeah. Um, but what's interesting is that the algorithm figured that out on its own. I didn't tell it. And uh, what's interesting is I've told this story to um, non-health professionals and health professionals. The non-health professionals never guess it, and they laugh when they hear it. The health professionals always laugh because they know exactly what it was that the machine <laughs> learning algorithm figured out in the end. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I was actually giving uh, this 
anecdote. I was uh, talking with one of my friends online about it, and he is a paramedic, but not like in computer science right now. And he thought it was hilarious. Yeah, as well. so, clearly, it's it's one of those machine learning algorithm jokes that you'll probably be able to use uh, for your whole career. I really um, hope so. It's a, it's a good story. It's yeah. a great story. Um, now, bearing that in mind, I mean, if MLAs are static phenomenon, if they are maybe based on more data, so hopefully better. Um, is that like a danger in assuming that just like just because it was derived in a giant data set, then it might be really applicable to your local milieu? Oh, absolutely. And that's one of the reasons, again, that we say that a machine learning algorithm that was designed in, you know, uh, Silicon Valley or in Boston, um, it's dangerous to say that we can apply that worldwide and it's going to work with the exact same accuracy every single time. Um, there are a lot of design decisions that I, as a machine learning expert, make when designing the system that we don't, uh, that's currently not communicated uh, as part of the system. And when we start saying, for example, a predominantly Caucasian population, if we start to sell this system in Asia, for example, they have different healthcare requirements. Um, even the drugs that they insure are completely different. Um, so a machine learning algorithm trained in Boston and transported to Asia will not understand those differences. And that's something that we need to communicate. Yeah. I mean, I think about it, if you use that clinical decision rule analogy again, um, we have the user's guide for figuring out what the quality assurance kind of markers are and the checklist. And I think that we can use a lot of those same questions to guide us when we're looking at a machine learning algorithm for clinical care. Right? Oh, absolutely. And one of the... Um, one of the things that really surprised me was when I learned about all of these uh, papers that have been written about uh, validating um, uh, clinical decision rules. Uh, I was like, this can easily directly apply to the machine learning algorithms. Uh, but right now what's happening is healthcare professionals are looking at the machine learning algorithms and um, they're, not, they, they're not thinking, oh, we can apply these pre-existing rules that we have to assess these types of yeah. systems. Yeah. I think that it's something that we need to probably start talking about. And of course, since we're the nerdy folks at McMaster University, we're going to be the ones to be like, well, you know what? You, you do need to be evidence-based with all these things. Because I just came from the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians uh, conference in Calgary. And uh, there were a bunch of people there wheeling and dealing, L MLAs, and I mean, they didn't call them that, but, you know, basically AI tech. Um, and they're starting to definitely penetrate our market. I'm sure that uh, even people outside of emergency medicine are starting to see them in, you know, oncology has probably got a bunch of people racing to the finish line there because I know IBM's thrown down the gauntlet to say that Watson's going to help and assist there. Um, but there's a bunch of everything from like scheduling programs being assisted by, by AI to other things. How do we know if we're being sold a, a color fish? Is there anything like that you might, you know, like uh, warn us against? Uh, well, I would first say like this is absolutely the right time to start asking these questions. Um, machine learning is starting to move out of the realm, particularly in medicine, it's moving out of the realm of pure research into application. Do we to actually try and assist healthcare professionals and to attempt to assist in treating patients? So this is this is the time to start asking these types of questions. Um, Again, it's the my advice when assessing these types of systems is similar to the clinical decision rules, is you want to know about the data. The data is the most important part. And even um, very basic um, demographic information about the data used to train this model is very helpful for assessing whether this is a valid or not system to look at. So for example, what's the average age? What is the breakdown of ethnicity? What's the breakdown of disease type, for example? 
Um, if an algorithm is trained on 90% healthy patients and 10% sick patients, if it has an accuracy of 90%, Maybe it's just identifying healthy patients and that and that's it. So it's really just asking questions about what is the data used to train the model in the first place. So I'm pulling up the methodological standards for the derivation of the clinical decision rules. And I'm looking at the paper um, that was published in JAMA and I'm seeing that the first question is, were all the important predictors included in the derivation process? And I find when I go up to someone and I'm like, well, this is the first first question I gotta ask you guys is, you know, what, what predictors do you consider and which ones did you ignore? And people are like, no, that's that the algorithm is proprietary. I can't tell you that. Oh, how absolutely. You how would you suggest? Well, you it's kind of like in Jack and the Beanstalk when he offers to sell you the magic beans. He's not mm -hmm. going to tell you where the magic beans came from, mm -hmm. um, especially um, from a programming point of view. Uh, as I said, they're salespeople, not necessarily health healthcare professionals, from a programming point of view, it's the features and the data used to train a model. That is what makes the model tech. That is why uh, a healthcare system is going to pay so much money for that. So it's understandable that they don't want to release that proprietary information, but at the same time, it's hobbling our ability as users of these systems to assess um, whether these feature, uh, how useful the model will be when actual clinical care. Mm -hmm. And then the second question is, were all the important predictors present in the significant proportion of the study population? And like you said, you know, like if they only study healthy people and then they're like, oh, this is very specific and there was no incidence of the disease, this is probably a big problem, right? And not understanding kind of the nuances there would be a barrier, correct? And it's something just uh, as a machine learning um, expert myself, it's one of the things I've never uh, occurred to me, for example, not just how much, what's our proportion of sick and healthy people, but could you go more grand? Or that in terms of different grades of severity, mm -hmm. how is that represented in your mm -hmm. system? Mm -hmm. um, and those are things that need to really need to be taken a look at from our end as um, developing these types of mm -hmm. systems. And the third question is, were all the outcome events and predictors clearly defined? And I think that that's usually pretty outlined, but mm -hmm. uh, I think that, again, it's just one of those things to probably ask yourself is, is the outcome an aggregate outcome? Is it a, a one-stop outcome? Is it just death? Is it all kind of morbidity and mortality? I think those are all really good questions. Um, it's really just about looking beyond accuracy. We don't mm -hmm. want to just as assess these systems as this has an accuracy of 99%. We need to ask these follow-up questions to assess yeah. how good those, how good that accuracy is. Yeah, and I think that the other thing that uh, you noted is that the next question is, were those assessing the outcome events blinded to the presence of the predictors and those assessing the presence of the predictors blinded to the outcome? So the blinding. Mm -hmm. um, what's nice about the MLA is that the MLA is, is not a cited kind of like, it doesn't really carry either way. It's just an algorithm mm -hmm. that's trying to learn from a data set, right? And, so. and what's nice as well is that um, a lot of these studies are retrospective. So we go mm -hmm. into a healthcare system, we mine, we retrieve this mm -hmm. retrospective data. So there's limited risk that the doctors themselves are biasing these predictors mm -hmm. one or not. Because at the end of the day, the data was not intended for a machine learning mm -hmm. application. But what's interesting about that then, it brings with it the retrospective study kind of conundrum, mm -hmm. which would be that your data might be incomplete, there might be giant holes in it, people might not have reported certain things or written down the right things in order for you to power your algorithm. Oh, absolutely. I remember during my master's, um, one of the things we wanted to calculate was BMI. Um, however, 30% of the data set we were using doesn't have height information. Mm -hmm. um, 
can't really calculate BMI without that information. Mm -hmm. So our, we had really two options. It's either throw away 30% of our data set, which is bad. Um, we tried it, it didn't work. Or can we impute that value using other available information? Um, however, once we've imputed that value and presented it to the model, the algorithm doesn't know the difference between an actual height information and an imputed value that we've created from another model. It treats it all the same. Yeah. And even more so, that's not, comp that's not communicated to the end user as well. Mm -hmm. When you sell that system, very rarely will they say 10% have missing data in variable one, 20% was missing in variable two, and this is how we address that. Yeah. Um, another interesting question to ask the designers. And so just, uh, just just to take a step back, what by impute do you mean when you have missing data, you substitute a value in? Exactly. Okay. Yes. All right. Okay. Fair enough. Um, and then I guess there's the sample size conundrum, right? Because mm -hmm. in MLAs, often what you'll see advertised is like, oh, this is derived a million data points. Um, but if you also had millions of facets that you were looking at, the millions of data points matter a whole lot less. You might only have five data points per five million facets, right? Oh, so. absolutely. And Again, when we see machine learning being used outside of healthcare, um, let's take Google and image recognition, for example. Let's say they've built a cat recognizer. In that case, 10,000, 10 million, 1 trillion images will make a difference on the accuracy because it's pictures. They're all clean, they're all relatively, they're in good shape. Mm -hmm. uh, but in healthcare, on the other hand, we're not looking at pretty cat pictures. We're looking at data that's incomplete. Um, we have population variations mm -hmm. that we need to worry about. So it's really not the matter of uh, bigger is better, it's how representative that data set is um, to the population we're trying to model. Yeah, fair enough, okay. And then I guess the last part is that the rule makes sense. And, but let's be honest, like if it's an MLA, it, you won't be able to just a giant algorithm that is in a formula pattern. So it'd be hard for me to really understand, right? And that's an, another reason why machine learning will not be replacing doctors anytime soon. Um, in machine learning, we refer to this as the black box. You put data in, you throw features, it creates its rule base. But outside very select algorithms, uh, for example, a deep learning system, we don't understand why a decision is being made. Uh, there's a lot of interesting research trying to uh, break open that box and look inside. Uh, but a, while a machine learning algorithm is a black box, there will always be a machine learning, uh, rather a healthcare expert required to oversee the algorithm and make a decision. And that's why machine learning uh, for the future uh, will be a decision support tool, uh, not replacing healthcare professionals. Okay. All right. Well, um, Omar, do you have any take-home thoughts that you want to share with the audience? Um, I, I say this every time uh, I have the opportunity to talk to healthcare professionals. People doing machine learning algorithms in healthcare, we want to make good systems to make your life better. And the quality of the data is really, really important to do that. So um, in Ontario, for example, we just finished um, updating our systems, but five, 10 years from now, we'll be looking to the next generation of PAC system, health record systems, health retention, um, and even how health data is input into those systems. Um, so my, my plea is to consider uh, potential machine learning applications when deciding on your next system to purchase. 
So for example, if there's a system that allows us to keep data in a queryable format, for example, I can export it as an XCL file, mm -hmm. then I can use that in machine learning versus if we write this on a piece of paper and then scan it into a healthcare record system, that's something I can't use for machine learning anymore. So it, since the quality of the data is so important, if future systems are purchased within mind machine learning applications that will allow us to build better systems to help you guys uh, hopefully deliver healthcare even better. All right, so that's for the three chiefs in the room that might be listening to this podcast. Yeah, <laughs> but absolutely. I think, I think that uh, what you're trying to ask of the rest of us is uh, to make sure that when we are generating health data that we are legible or that we're clear that we try to communicate well so that if people are using the data in a retrospective format to inform future decisions that it might be helpful. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much uh, for joining us on this uh, edition of the McMaster podcast and uh, we'll check you guys next time. Thank you very much. Thanks to Omar Bersali and Teresa Chan for this very interesting discussion around a rapidly evolving topic in healthcare. Both of them did a great job summarizing some of the main points along the way, but we'll drive home a few of the take-homes here as well. First, one should understand the difference between AI and machine learning. AI can be thought of as an independently thinking and functioning system that can learn new data after deployment and apply itself to new tasks. Machine learning algorithms, on the other hand, are sets of rules or processes a program will be able to follow to complete a pre-specified task. Unlike AI, it cannot learn new things or be applied to tasks for which it wasn't originally designed. Think of machine learning as a supercharged CDR with the capacity to use millions of patient data points and thus has the power to find relationships that might not otherwise be considered by researchers. Like CDRs, a machine learning algorithm will only be as good as the data it's derived from. And thus, what seems to perform well in a derivation based on retrospective data may not pan out as being useful when validated prospectively, and what might be valid in one population might not be so in another. Questions we use to evaluate a CDR's applicability to clinical practice are relevant to machine learning as well. We want to know, were all the important predictors included in the derivation process? Were all of the important predictors present in a significant portion of the study population? Were all of the outcome events and predictors clearly defined? Of course, these questions might not be so easy to get answers to if we're trying to get them from a sales rep trying to sell a proprietary machine learning product. And also, does the rule make sense? Omar spoke of the black box issue, where it's nearly impossible to determine why a decision is being made within a machine learning algorithm, and thus human interpretation of the result is critical. Think of machine learning as a decision support tool, not a replacement for healthcare providers. Our jobs aren't going anywhere anytime soon. And for those that might be involved in administrative decisions around medical record system purchasing, consider systems that allow for easy access to data that is in a queryable format. Thanks again to Omar and Teresa. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Residence Corner. I'm your host, Joanna, and I am happy to see you here today. Today with us, we have a great resident bite for you, and I can't wait to tell you. Have you ever been on a shift or clinic seeing a toddler with head trauma and wondering whether you should order that CT head or not? Well, one of the clinical tools that we use to help us answer that question is the PCARN head rule. If you're like me, I can never remember the exact criteria and will quickly end up looking it up on Google. And the first thing that comes up is a beautifully laid out infographic of the clinical rule. Do you ever wonder who creates them? Is it a team of experts in the background, formally trained in this sort of work? 
or is it an emergency medicine resident talented outside of the typical emergency room? Well, I have the pleasure of having here with me Dr. Alvin Chen from McMaster University. Alvin, thank you so much for being here today. Hey, Joanna. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, as you said, I'm a third-year emergency medicine resident here at Mac, uh, and uh, just glad to well, be here. Well, thank you for being here. We're so lucky to have you. Now, Alvin, you're part of the Canadian, um, and can you tell us a little bit more how you got involved in this opportunity, and later on we'll talk a little bit more in detail about how you got involved with the PCARN head rule and all the other awesome infographics and other things that you do. Yeah, it's a kind of a funny story, actually. Um, I was at one of the conferences here at Mac called 10 EM and Brent from the University of Saskatchewan and the creator of formerly Boring EM and now Canadium was also at the conference. And after the conference, I just had a chance to sit down with him and he was talking about a project that he was working on with the American Heart Association on creating these infographics for the new updates in 2015. Um, and I remember clearly I was hosting a party for my friends that night, uh, but I asked him, is there anything that I can help out with? Uh, like, I really like your work with Boring EM. And he said, yeah, actually, we're working on creating a set of infographics. It'd be really cool if you could help us with uh, creating a template for the design. And of course, as a medical student gunning for EM, I said, yeah, absolutely, I can help you with that. What's, when's the timeline like for this? And he said, well, if you could get us a template for the guidelines uh, tonight, that would be fantastic. Mm -hmm. So eventually I spent about the first hour of my own party uh, working on this infographic template. And uh, that's, that's history. That actually sounds amazing. And I wish everyone, you know, always had such a good story to tell behind how they got interested in all this. It sounds like it started off maybe as a bit of a luck uh, and, you know, right time, right place kind of thing. But it definitely has grown into a lot more since then, uh, knowing, you know, how much I know about all the things that you are involved in. Can you tell us a little bit about specifically with the PCARN and any of the other infographics that you've been particularly involved with um, and how you took that first encounter with this person and then came out with all of these great infographics and rules that you've come up with? Well, I think it was a lot about um, how surprisingly, the infographics with the AHA guidelines just really blew up uh, and traveled really across the world. Uh, and since then, uh, Teresa Chan, one of the staff here at McMaster and Brent have just really been great mentors for me and uh, hooking me up with different opportunities that just present themselves. Mm. So for example, with the PCARN um, infographics, I was actually contacted by uh, one of the founders of uh, ALIEM, so Academic Life and Emergency Medicine, uh, and it was a group of residents, med students, and staff from across Canada and the States that actually came together to design something um, for PCARN to make the rule more accessible and uh, just easier for clinical practice. So I know you're saying that some opportunities presented themselves, but I hope you know that these opportunities are testament to quality of the work that he did prior to, you know, these other opportunities arising themselves. I don't think it's common for all of us medical students uh, to be approached by different groups uh, out there to do work for them unless we've shown something for it, unless we've shown sort of how dedicated we are and how passionate we are about that. So it sounds 
to me, Alvin, like a lot of the stuff that you're doing now in the infographics, it's part of this new phenomenon movement of FOMED. And for those of us who don't know, FOMED stands for Free uh, Open Access to Medical Education. Um, what role do you think infographics specifically play in the world of FOMED, the future of education? And how do you see this playing out specifically as far as you know, as far as you've experienced? Infographics are just essentially another option for everyone. So I think how I really got interested in this world is because I I never liked going to lectures. So throughout my undergrad, during my master's, I never really found that lectures were particularly helpful because I had my own learning style. And what FOMED provides is just a number of different tools and options for everyone. And where I think uh, infographics is Again, just another option. Some people are more visual learners. Some people like listening to podcasts. But the more tools and options we provide learners and clinicians, the, I think that we're just making their life easier to practice the best medicine that they can. Certainly having access to infographics has made my learning uh, a, a little bit sort of easier and more digestible. Uh, clinical shift or specifically when I'm at work, uh, it certainly makes it more accessible. So important for our listeners, um, Alvin, you've told us a lot about what you've done and the utility of infographics as far as learning and clinical utility of it uh, is. How do you think someone, let's say like me or one of our listeners, if they wanted to be involved with a project like this, what opportunities are there out there? How would they go about finding out or being involved in one of these projects? So full disclosure, I'm one of the infographic editors uh, for Canadium, a bit of advertising here, but there's lots of opportunities to get involved. We recruit uh, once a year for junior editors, but even outside of that, if anyone has a great idea about um, an infographic they want to create, or let's say they want to get involved in creating blog posts, um, we're always happy to help and happy to include new people. That's absolutely amazing. And I have a feeling some of our listeners may take you up on that offer very soon. So you can thank me or blame me for it afterwards when you get all those emails after this podcast. Well, Alvin, thank you so much for being here. It's an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And we've learned about yet another aspect of FOMED, infographics specifically. And myself and the listeners cannot wait to see where this takes you and sort of what comes out of this work in the future. And thanks, Joanna, for having me. And to our listeners, thank you guys and see you next time. Hey everyone, it's Kevin Dong here. Hope you enjoyed our podcast for this month. Lots of amazing pearls and local information for people to soak up and use in the near future. Before we finish our episode, I just want to send out a few shout outs for some awesome achievements of our local ER physicians. We really have great individuals who should get recognition for their hard work in the medical education and research world. First, we want to congratulate Dr. Kirsten DeWitt who is an ER and thrombosis physician at the Hamilton Health Sciences. Her work was selected as one of the top abstracts for the CAPE Research Plenaries, and she will be receiving the Top New Investigator Award in Halifax this year. Second, we also want to congratulate Mac Emerge Podcast's very own Dr. Teresa Chan, who has won one of the Canadian Association of Medical Educators Meredith Marks Young Educators Award which she will receive at the Canadian Conference of Medical Education in Niagara this year. Congratulations again to both of these amazing individuals for their hard work and their achievements. Additionally, MacEmerge has had great success in the past month within research and in medical education. 
A few shout-outs go out to papers published by Dr. Blair Bigham, Stephen Skitch, Teresa Chan, Dr. Fox Robichaud, who was an ICU physician here in Hamilton, Jonathan Sherbino, Stephanie Bazak, Chenille Dupede, and many others. Congratulations again to everyone. And if you're listening and want to congratulate or mention anyone on their recent successes, please do not hesitate to let us know. Hope you enjoyed our episode and see you all again next month. Kevin Dong, out. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Mac Emerge out!